If You Believed Moses, Volume 2, Part 2, The Status of the Old and New Covenants. Opening quote from Jeremiah 9. All the nations are uncircumcised in the flesh, but all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Close quote. What is the law of Moses worth today? Everything and nothing. Everything in Christ, nothing without him. Many say that God cannot annul the old covenant, for he does not change his mind. This is to misunderstand his eternal decrees, wherein the whole process of change is foreseen in advance and unfolds in time. Nature frequently involves passing over singularities, sharp and irreversible developments from one state to another. A butterfly does not revert to a crawling caterpillar. A branch burnt to ashes cannot be brought back to life. A man cannot climb back into his mother's womb. The new covenant cannot revert to the old. The two sides of the ineffable singularity by which the old passed over to the new are marked by the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. The difference between the old and new covenants is, in the inerrant allegory of the letter to the Galatians, that difference between Hagar and Sarah. The former brings forth a life by carnality, the natural not crowned with the supernatural, doomed due to the fall, to die. The latter conceives and brings forth new life according to God's promise, by God's operation, set for salvation. This the Old Testament promises and the New Testament actualizes. To try to restore the Old Covenant is a revolt against God's will. It would be to declare that the New Covenant was never promised, that the Messiah has not come that Jesus' body is not the true temple. But a mustard tree cannot revert to seed. A supernova, an explosion of light, cannot be reversed. How is it that learned Jews, including those who study the Torah daily, fail to see how the Old Testament anticipates Christ's passion? The Bible answers that as vain-minded Gentiles are separated from God because of the blindness of their hearts. Similarly, blindness in part has happened in Israel. God lifts the veil for those who seek truth, but many prefer the darkness. The difference is in the decision to lament Christ crucified or not. The deepest division in the world can be healed only by God. Its hidden depths cut through hearts, yet the accumulating results, for good or ill, will become a spectacle to all the world. The final futile rejection of the new covenant by attempting to build Jerusalem's temple in a hopeless push to practice the old. The deepest division in the world. Thousands of Jews mourned the crucifixion of Jesus when or soon after it happened. Quote, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who bewailed and lamented him. Close quote. Some were close enough to contemplate the Blessed Virgin Mary spiritually martyred under the cross. They might also have noticed and later pondered St. Mary Magdalene, 
St. John the Beloved Disciple, St. Dismas, St. Longinus. A spiritual tsunami was developing. Immediately after the crucifixion, a tidal wave of compunction flooded the hearts of the Jews. Quote, and all the multitude of them that were come together to that site and saw the things that were done returned striking their breasts. Close quote. Did God choose the Jews because they had the biggest hearts or the hardest hearts? Which would better show the gratuity of salvation? The Gospels seem to indicate both. There were those close to the cross who evidently had the best of hearts, while others climbed up Calvary to mock Jesus and did not repent. Their hearts were not wounded by His. Addressing both kinds of people, St. Peter, after bitter contrition over his absence from Calvary, now fortified with love, preached with great effect at Pentecost. Quote, now when they had heard these things, they had compunction in their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, What shall we do, men and brethren? But Peter said to them, Do penance and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, whomsoever the Lord our God shall call. Save yourselves from this perverse generation. They therefore that received his word were baptized, and there were added in that day about three thousand souls. Close quote. Many chose salvation, as also will their children that are far off. But others perversely chose darkness. Those who refused to lament the crucifixion missed their calling. Quote, oh, that you had hearkened to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off, or destroyed from before me. Close quote. What is at the heart of human failure? What decides whether we can see or not? St. John supplies the answer. Quote, if any man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he sees, how can he love God whom he sees not? And this commandment we have from God that he who loves God love also his brother. Close quote. Now Jesus came as a brother to the Jews, to mankind. Everyone in Jerusalem saw him crucified or heard about it. Everyone in the world whom the gospel has reached or who has beheld a crucifix or has watched Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ is confronted with their brother in agony. The question is, do they care? No one ever had a sorrow quite like Jesus's sorrow. If we have any humanity in us, we will want to know who he was, what happened, why. As we discover the answers, we are bound to be sad. This path leads thence to a lamentation of the state of the world, to an honest contrition for our own sins, then a trust in the Lamb's sinlessness and conversion to the God of love who died to save us. 
before we behold the cross with gratitude, with awe, with veneration and worship, we begin with compassion. If someone refuses to commiserate the crucified or his mother, then they have no love of God. It is wrong to say one loves God if one does not care about one's brother. It is not possible to love God and simultaneously scorn Jesus. This is divine law, John 15, and natural law, 1 John 4. Catholics express their contrition in the sacrament of confession. God rewards such with sanctifying grace. There are humanists like Oscar Wilde, who acknowledging Jesus' innocence and admiring his goodness, admit that he suffered gross injustice and cruelty. As reward for their natural honesty, God grants actual graces, which, if they continue to cooperate with him, lead to conversion and sanctifying grace, salvation. We may hope Oscar is in heaven. But there are those who, while still refusing to acknowledge that Jesus is divine and that he is the Messiah, refuse even that natural debt of acknowledging he was innocent, nor do they compassionate him who suffered such fearful agony. Until today, they blank him out. Privately, sometimes publicly, he is mocked. This is the most damaging problem in the world, for nothing deepens the darkness more intensely than actively rejecting the light. Rejection of divine light follows from Lucifer's fall to man's fall and thence through all history, from Cain to the Antichrist. A long descent into diabolic corruption was required for obscurity of souls to reach such a low pitch that Annas and Caiaphas wanted Jesus killed. Aaron's high priesthood had become disfigured beyond spiritual recognition. Until recently, the Church was not afraid to preach clearly on this. But since Nostra Aetate in 1965, Church documents avoid clarity on the crucial beginnings of Jewish-Catholic relations. Church authorities fatally gloss over what Jews did over centuries to the early Church, what they did to the Apostles, what they did to Christ, and as Jesus said, what their fathers did in murdering the prophets. If these facts are not faced by both sides, how can there be understanding? Christians are called to love their enemies after Christ loved those who crucified him. If we pretend they are not enemies, if we are guilt-tripped into thinking it is a task of the Church to commend Judaism as good, this will provide cover for Jewish exploitation of Gentiles, leading to widespread resentment which, without a Christian perspective, provokes pogroms and worse. But being clear-eyed that Judaism opposes the gospel, the saving truth, we beg God's graces to endure their opposition, even as we attempt to treat adherents of Judaism and its offshoots with all justice, charity and openness. How is honest dialogue sustainable with a follower of Judaism unless he can admit that Jesus Christ suffered, suffered gruesomely, suffered unjustly, was innocent, was betrayed, was a victim of a conspiracy by Jewish leaders. Further, 
that these leaders lobbied the Roman powers to execute Jesus and stirred up the crowds to call for his crucifixion, crowds who lived in fear of them. Moreover, that the leaders responsible harboured the same murderous hatred towards St. Stephen, St. James and St. Paul, and over centuries their successors have connived against the Church. If these facts are indefinitely avoided, how can a fruitful dialogue proceed? If someone denies these things, they are ignorant or heartless or lying. No one can truthfully fault Jesus. All his words are accurate, and the accusation that making himself God is blasphemy only holds water if he is not, in fact, God. Evidently, his claim strains our imagination, yet Jesus countered charges of blasphemy by instructing his accusers to consider and believe by his works. At his trial, these were not considered, for the process was not aimed at truth. Jesus demonstrated his divinity by doing such things as only God can do. He knows this is hard for some to believe, so he is patient, crowning his proofs with raising himself from the dead. To admit that Jesus is God requires that the Father grant the grace of revelation from heaven. It is hardly possible to recognize Jesus as Messiah without a supernatural elevation of one's sight. Are we judged upon this? Can a man be sent to hell because God refused to grant him the grace of understanding? These questions miss the point. We are confronted with our brother, our suffering brother, our innocent suffering brother. That is where souls are won or lost. If we care, if we look into it, if we allow what we find to cause us sorrow and increase love in us, then we are on course to receive sanctifying grace and reach heaven. But if we deny what we see, if we remain indifferent, if we turn away, then how could we possibly fit into heaven anyway? How could we gaze upon love and be happy in heaven if we do not wish to do it while on earth? Grace perfects us, it does not contradict our choices. With these reflections, we are approaching that singularity where the old is passed over into the new. The fragility of the old covenant is demonstrated by its leaders plotting deicide. The full power of the new covenant will be seen in the long-promised conversion of their successors so that they finally enter it. Jesus came to bring division. He knows and will demonstrate which hearts love and which not. Everyone has a role in this. Even the serpent unwillingly serves God in this, dividing hearts into their two camps from the beginning. This is the deepest division of men. It is not ephemeral, but is absolute in respect to the crucifixion, whether before or after. The Bible draws our attention to Sem, father of all Semites. The sacred text preserves his memory as Sem also the father of all the children of Heber, who are the Hebrews. Here Torah emphasizes division, saying, To Heber were born two sons. The name of one was Phaleg, 
because in his days the earth was divided. Even if this describes tectonic plates or political conflicts, ultimately it concerns a spiritual division within hearts. This same division is symbolized in the arrangement made by Abraham and Lot. Abraham allowed Lot to choose whatever land he wanted. Lot looked and chose the place of Sodom and Gomorrah. He raced ahead to grasp the world. Demurring, Abraham calmly proceeds to inherit the promised land. He even goes on to rescue Lot, the seed of his deceased elder brother Aaron. So Christians will be there to rescue the last Jews who turn to choose Jesus when Sodom turns upon them. Until then, connecting Judaism's infidelity to Moses with infidelity to the Christ, Abraham says, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rise again from the dead. Luke chapter 16 Within the Jewish people, and following their lead, all people, are two nations. God told Rebekah about the brothers contesting within her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two peoples shall be divided out of thy womb. There is a deep spiritual fight, for or against the Logos, for or against the Word of God, Jesus Christ. This is the division of peoples, which is a division of hearts. The separation of mankind into children of God and children of Satan is perennial. It is the earth theme of Genesis 1, separating the light from the darkness, above from below, the dry land from the waters. These motifs continue through human society. Cain killed his younger brother, Lamech killed a youth, Nimrod hunted men. Cain's son built a city, signifying a man-made system alienated from nature in opposition to Noah, the man of the earth, who obeyed all God's commands. Soon the city of man reveals itself in the Tower of Babel to have designs on divinity. This impossible hubris is driven by the devil and erupts on earth. Darkness has no part in light. God laid the foundations for the holy city, he calls man to participate in building it. Jesus proved that the city of God is built on self-sacrifice. The city of man is built on sacrificing others. The first city is heavenly, the second is of hell. We choose sides by our response to the crucifixion. Precisely here on the cross occurs the unrepeatable and irrevocable transition from the old covenant to the new. Circumcision of Heart God has entered the chasm between the uncreated and the created. He spoke to Adam and the prophets. He filled the tabernacle and temple with the glory of his presence. In the incarnation, the uncreated united with the created. God dwelt among us. By his ascension, the created entered fully into the uncreated. In his sacred humanity, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of his Father. For bridging the uncreated and created, we marvel at the incarnation and ascension. 
These two events in history both reveal God's love for us. Yet these are not the height of the singularity, for between them stands something greater still. It was at the passion of Jesus Christ that the fullness of God's love was shown to man. The old covenant prepared for this revelation. The sign of membership was real but hidden, indicating the secrets of hearts. Quote, Be circumcised to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your hearts, ye men of Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Close quote. What can this be but a spiritual circumcision? The old covenant, exterior, material, carnal, bloody, is insufficient. The new covenant, interior, essential, spiritual, full of grace, enters into the old to bestow the fullness of life. If we admit what God did on the cross, if our heart is opened to his limitless love, then the new covenant lives within us. Quote, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, because they shall return to me with their whole heart. Close quote. The Spirit of God vivifies the soul of Christ, which animates the flesh of Christ, and the same Spirit lives in us who are the body of Christ. This is the new covenant in His blood, His passion, wherein God was revealed. We cannot revert from new to old, just as a man once circumcised cannot be uncircumcised. A person who refuses to be cut to the heart by the passion is not a member of God's people. Rejecting Jesus' incarnation, Judaism misunderstands man's spiritual purity and bodily dignity. Christ loves his church as bridegroom to bride, but there is no sexual activity in or by God. Procreation is a good of this life, not of heaven. While Christ explained that angels do not marry, and it is philosophically absurd to project sexual behavior onto them, the Talmud does just that. Quote, Rabbi Katina said, When the Israelites would ascend to the holy temple on the festival, the Kohen would roll up the curtain for them and display for them the cherubs who were joined together in an embrace. The Kohen would tell them, Behold the beloved feelings for you on the part of the omnipresent are like the beloved feelings of a male for a female. Close quote. How confused this is. None of this can be true, yet it is still taught approvingly today, especially in commentaries on the double Torah portion of Vayakel Pekudei. The projection of materiality, even carnality, onto angels goes even further with bizarre and blasphemous Kabbalistic accounts of sexual congress among multiple gods. The secret book of John is a Gnostic blasphemy asserting that God, called Yaldabaoth, is monstrously deformed, lied about being the one God, that God, not Satan, deceived Adam and Eve into eating from the tree, and afterwards he raped Eve. For their part, 
human beings are to engage in sexual excess to bring male and female gods together and to restore original androgyny. Modern Gnostics still engage in sexual rituals designed to unite the divine male and female essences. Gnosticism posits matter as radically evil, something to be hated, calumniously claiming to trace their teaching back to the Epiphany's three wise men. Masonic Gnostics arranged blasphemous masses involving sexual intercourse on the altar in a search for immortality and the rebuilding of Solomon's temple. The Talmud perverts Adam's jubilant cry, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, noting, quote, This teaches that Adam had intercourse with each animal and beast in his search for his mate and his mind was not at ease in accordance with the verse, and for Adam there was not found a helpmate for him, until he had intercourse with Eve. Close quote. Christianity alone gives the truth about spirit and flesh. The triune God lives eternally. He alone created angels, matter and men. He gave Eve to Adam in marriage and commanded them to multiply and in the fullness of time he came to dwell among us in the flesh, conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. How great the dignity of the flesh, that it should be united with immortal spirits and even with God. How pure the spirit, how simple and imperishable and clear and full of peace is the divine life, which is immutable love. Rebuilding the Temple what manifests the most determined denial of the true relation of body to spirit, of man to God, of creature to creator? What showcases a collective and unbroken negation that God's spirit came to dwell in Christ's flesh, the new temple, and that Christ's flesh was taken up into heaven, the final temple, and that God's spirit dwells in the baptized so that they can worship him in this eternal temple. It is the 2,000-year-long endeavor to rebuild the stone temple in Jerusalem, a sign contradicting God's perfect plan. Its architect, Satan, demands to know whether we will bow to this enterprise or not. A sojourner receiving visitors in his tent is a metaphor for a man receiving God into his soul. Such hospitality indicates the beginning of devotion to God. Raising the analogy, God's presence in the desert tabernacle points to the divinity within the humanity of Christ. God dwelling in Jerusalem's temple anticipates him living in the souls of the baptized, the church. The temple is a visible parable written in stones and gold, in sacred furniture and cyclic rituals. The temple and sacrifices of the old covenant prepare us to see in Christ the true temple and the all-sufficient sacrifice of the new and everlasting covenant. Judaism, which emerged post-temple, is not Abrahamic or Mosaic or Davidic, for St. Augustine and St. Thomas teach that Abraham, Moses and David had faith in Jesus Christ. 
it is impossible now to observe the Old Testament qua old, because even in its own time it meant acceptance of Christ. The absence of the stone temple also has great meaning. God has come in the flesh and dwells among us in the Holy Eucharist. What would a rebuilt temple mean but a denial of Jesus' divinity, as if he is not now with us and within us in the Blessed Sacrament? For what does the Scripture say but that our bodies also become temples of the Holy Spirit when we are baptised in Christ? How holy is the body! Against this, modernity rails in rebellion, spurning God's natural and supernatural order. What is abortion but the genocidal destruction of temples built by God? Given that the male represents the divine and the female represents the human, what is transgender surgery but a wild manifestation of prideful man demoting God and usurping his place? It presages transhumanism, the attempt to build with human hands our own kind of temple, either a hybrid of beasts with humans or an engineering of man with machine. Both are grotesque, both are man playing God. Do these attacks on the body have any spiritual connection with the attempt to rebuild the temple? Are there not rabbis who study the Torah and teach vigorously against abortion and transgenderism? There are, but it is demons, not men, who coordinate assaults against the true and beautiful body of Christ. Transgenderism against the biological body, rebuilding the temple against the mystical body. Neither the human body nor the true temple is a work of human hands. So long as Jews, whether orthodox or humanist, deny Jesus Christ, they facilitate the devilish damage done by the Kabbalists among them. Each baby killed in the womb, each child manipulated and mutilated by sexologist surgeons, is a depraved rebellion against God. Each sin affords an accumulation of dark capital in the spiritual accounts of those serving Satan directly, who lead the lobbies and legislatures for public and even state-sponsored evil against the innocent. These men, Satan makes masters of the universe to strive toward a final insult to God. The stones of Satan's temple are being quarried by lies and murder. Moses said, choose life, but the ADL tweeted, reproductive freedom is a Jewish value. That one sentence is a lie made for murder. Abortion is not reproductive, and killing the defenseless is not freedom. Deliriously, the US National Council of Jewish Women is ferocious in its advocacy for abortion with polls claiming over 80% of US Jews are in favour. Regarding babies as disposable follows intrinsically from advocacy for contraception and fosters intrinsically the mindset for homosexual marriage. The first legal gay marriage in the world was performed 1st of April 2001 by Amsterdam's mayor Job Cohen. A decade later, 
Vice President Joe Biden praised Jewish influences, saying, quote, I bet you 85% of those changes to acceptance of homosexuality, whether in Hollywood or social media, are a consequence of Jewish leaders in the industry. Close quote. Though opposed by many Orthodox Jews, the Jewish leaders whom Biden lords are among some of the most destructive persons ever born. The demonic Dr. John Money of John Hopkins University used a botched circumcision in 1966 to have Bruce Reimer raised as a girl, performing transgender surgery on the 22-month-old boy to mutilate his genitals completely. Both Bruce and his twin Brian committed suicide in their 30s. Although Dr. Money should be punished, he is lauded by society. Judith Butler, founder of Gender Theory and one of the most influential voices to approve drag queen story hours for children, is Jewish. Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, who unabashedly uses his unrivaled financial power to force behaviours on gender diversity, is Jewish. The pioneers of sexual perversion as liberation ideology form a network dominated by Jews. Magnus Hirschfeld coined the term transvestite in his 1910 work Transvestites, an investigation into the erotic drive of cross-dressing. In 1913, Felix Aaron Talhaber, a lifelong Zionist, became founding chairman of the Society of Sexual Reform in Berlin. These medical professionals worked to legalize abortion and contraception and to reform laws on obscenity, homosexuality, exhibitionism and paedophilia. Wilhelm Reich regarded premarital chastity and the taboo on masturbation as life-denying and disease-inducing. His book, The Sexual Revolution, 1935, advocated liberation through sex education, blaming patriarchal society for repressing youth with morals. The collective influence of these refugees from rabbinical Judaism has devastated civilization. To be clear, degrading sexuality is a work of all nations. All impure thoughts contribute to it, and no nation has a monopoly on those. Alfred Kinsey was a Gentile, not a Jew. But examine the worst revolutions. The majority of Bolsheviks were not Jews, and the majority of Jews were not Bolsheviks, Yet the Bolshevik leadership was dominated by Jews beyond all demographic proportion. The hellish gender revolution rolls on. The Jewish Pritzker billionaires are driving a transition, quote, from a demorphic definition of sex to the broad acceptance and propagation of synthetic sex identities, that is, a new godlike goal using gender ideology to remake human biology. Close quote. Luke Ford once asked why Jews are so markedly overrepresented in the pornography industry. Alvin Goldstein, who normalized hardcore porn, explained himself, 
Quote, the only reason that Jews are in pornography is that we think that Christ sucks. Catholicism sucks. We don't believe in authoritarianism. Pornography thus becomes a way of defiling Christian culture and as it penetrates to the very heart of the American mainstream and is in no doubt consumed by those very same wasps, its subversive character becomes more charged. Close quote. Goldstein added, quote, I believe in me. I'm God. I am the superbeing. I am your God. Admit it. Close quote. These people are channeling hell. What have any of them got to do with the old covenant and rebuilding the temple? The rebuilding seems to be a project of the rabbis who are robust in condemning modernity's demonic ideologies but therein lies the connection. It is because the position of those who want to hold on to the Old Covenant is patently untenable, even oppressive, that Jews leave Judaism in droves, thinking rebellion is liberation. But without Christ, they do not know where to put their messianic mindset, so they become attached to false messiahs instead. The height of goodness is God giving his only son to be crucified and the height of evil is crucifying him. It follows inescapably that the greatest ongoing good is the celebration of the memorial of his self-sacrifice, Holy Mass, and the darkest ongoing evil is the taking of God's children to crucify them. Satanism stipulates that the most valuable victims for its offerings are the most innocent and most intelligent. A human sacrifice is worth more to Satan than an animal, and the most innocent victims are children. The church once venerated child martyrs believed to have been crucified in satanic rituals. Dominguito del Val of Zaragoza Little St. Hugh of Lincoln, Simon of Trent, El Santo Nino de la Guardia. Many Jews were detained, tried, and executed in each case. A chapel was built to Dominguito in Zaragoza Cathedral, housing his relics. He was beatified in 1807, entering the diocesan calendar. Simon of Trent was listed in the Roman Martyrology and an annual procession of his relics persisted in Trent until suppressed on the day Paul VI signed Nostra Aetate in 1965. A shrine was built to Little Hugh in Lincoln Cathedral, as was one to El Santo Nino in a Dominican monastery in Avila. Today, these accounts are dismissed along with scores of others as blood libels, the inventions of paranoid, greedy or malicious Christians. The new narrative forbids us from believing that men can crucify children, yet this entails accepting that others fabricate such cases to frame them. For Jews to work evil is impossibly implausible. As for Gentiles, evil flows from their anti-Semitic nature. Is it not more balanced to think 
that though both the Torah and the New Testament forbid the monstrosities of Satanism, as well as forbidding false accusations of it, which is also satanic, even so, both Jews and Gentiles work both kinds of evil, that is, real instances of child sacrifice have indeed happened, and that more alleged cases, likely the majority, have been invented on the back of these few which are true. Ariel Toaf, Professor of Medieval and Renaissance History at Israel's Bar Ilan University, bravely published an erudite and objective study titled Blood Passover, European Jews and Ritual Murder. Toaf is the son of a former chief rabbi of Rome. Following a furious backlash and death threats, Toaf withdrew the book from circulation. The back cover of an unofficial translation of his book read, quote, An unprejudiced rereading of the original trial records, however, together with the records of several other trials, viewed within the overall European context and supplemented by an exact knowledge of the relevant Hebrew texts, throws new light on the ritual and therapeutic significance of blood in Jewish culture, leading the author of the present study to the reluctant conclusion that particularly where Ashkenazi Jewry was concerned, the blood libel accusation was not always an invention. Close quote. Before Professor Toaf's book was published, I came to a similar conclusion having researched specific cases while living in Spain. There is too much corroboratory evidence to dismiss the allegations. How is child sacrifice unthinkable when the Old Testament is full of it? God commissioned Israel to wipe it out from Canaan and this was partially achieved. But being unfaithful to the covenant, Again and again Israel imitated the surrounding nations in performing child sacrifice, including by their kings. When today we hear of child sacrifice by Hollywood elites or globalist cabals, why should we dismiss it? We should not be credulous or prejudiced, but given the inherent paucity of evidence, combined with the long history of human sacrifice in various cultures, Judaism's preoccupation with therapeutic and mystical usages of blood and the grotesque exhibitions of Marina Abramovich's faux cannibalistic parties, let alone the professions of Satanists, then the proper response is not to dismiss the reports, but to reserve judgment and to be vigilant. The truth is not that child sacrifice does not happen, but that it has never stopped. Trafficking in children's blood, child pornography and the demonic lust for abortion make it undeniable that evil seeks to devour God's children. This is spiritual. It is a mocking inversion of the new covenant, of God giving his beloved Son in sacrifice. As Christians adore the precious blood of Christ for redeeming the world, so Satan lusts after the blood of innocence to corrupt the whole world. The Torah opposes Satan. Kabbalah does not. Quote, Thus, the blood of circumcision, 
that of the Passover lamb, and that of those killed in defence of their own faith, became mixed together and became confounded, hastening the final redemption of Israel and persuading God to wreak his atrocious vengeance on the children of Edom, the Christians, responsible for the tragedies suffered by the Jewish people. The Jews in Germany who, during the First Crusade, sacrificed their own children as Abraham sacrificed Isaac his son, were perfectly convinced that their own blood, together with that of the two other sacrifices, circumcision and the Passover lamb, all offered to God in abnegation, would not be lost, but would constitute the powerful fluid from which the well-deserved and predicted revenge and the much-desired redemption would ferment. Close quote. Without Christ, dangerous confusion surrounds the religiously minded on the profound meaning of blood. What is new in the New Covenant? The New Covenant is new because the Incarnation is a new thing upon the earth. Jeremiah 31 It is new because it is cut not in the blood of animals, but in the most precious blood of the God-man. It is new because the uncreated enters the created, so that the created can enter the uncreated. It is universal and spiritual, instead of particular and material. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly said, You have heard that it hath been said to them of old. The old commandments Jesus elevated beyond all imagining by directing us to internalize spiritually what had once been more materially understood. Being eternal, the new even penetrates the past. The biographies of King Saul and King David prefigure the struggle between the old covenant and the new. Ultimate victory, that is, in the spiritual sphere, is achieved by being willing to sacrifice oneself in the temporal. So the son of David, not Saul, has the eternal throne. While the Jews have been made, or bred, to be the first to believe this, to be given grace upon grace and become the greatest lights to the world when they are open to God, so when they refuse grace, they become the most dangerous. For example, the world's idea is to go after money. But an inspired Jew once wrote, quote, the desire of money is the root of all evils, which some coveting have erred from the faith and have entangled themselves in many sorrows. Close quote. Freeing us from mammon's grasp, God wants to enrich us with grace. We are to store up treasure in heaven through acts of charity and sacrifice. In pursuing grace, Jews excel. Look at the apostles. To the benefit of many. In chasing money, Jews also excel to the detriment of many. Great gifts from God will bear great fruits if used faithfully, but if misused they do great damage. For example, being the chosen people, receiving the law from Moses, being led by angels to clear the land of Canaanites, these three gifts are tectonic. Received well, what do we see? 
Mary chosen to be mother of God, and through her Son everyone can become a member of his chosen people. A spiritualization of the law so that multiplicity is solved in simplicity, the 613 commandments of the Torah being summed up, love God, and like it, love neighbor. Thirdly, the help of angels is offered for driving sin from our souls. But misunderstood, the material excluding the spiritual, the three gifts become occasions for disasters, a superiority complex which looks down on Goyim with contempt, a suffocating legalism as witnessed in the Pharisees, which deliberately overburdens men with laws so that they cannot naturally flourish, and a demonic drive to push Palestinians from their land, a plan which, if pursued, threatens to draw down the whole world, if not militarily, then geopolitically. The old and the new meet in Christ. To reject him is to reject also the old. A worldview which values the material more than the spiritual is necessarily in conflict with the new covenant, which raises the material, even flesh, through the infinite power of God's Spirit. How, amid orchestrated chaos and deliberate confusion, shall we know what to believe? In the New Testament, God makes known the inner truth, a mystery which, quote, in other generations was not known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Close quote. Raising our minds, Jesus taught that his kingdom is not of this world. A fearful pilot wanted to respect the spiritual unknown, but instead he sold out to the enemy, to those who had been murdering God's prophets for centuries. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou release this man, thou art not Caesar's friend. Reckoning that spilling the blood of Christ was success, they continued by stirring up opposition against the church. Quote, but the Jews stirred up religious and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas. Close quote. After this, in Lystra, the crowds so loved Paul and Barnabas that the two of them had to restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. But what changed this enthusiasm to worship the apostles into a mortal hatred? Quote, now there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, and persuading the multitude and stoning Paul, drew him out of the city, thinking him to be dead. Close quote. This multitude represents Christendom, or the world population venerating the saints, yet finally turning against the church, as in today's shrieking, pro-abort, pro-homo, transhumanist persecutors. So in Thessalonica, quote, the Jews, moved with envy and taking unto them some wicked men of the vulgar sort and making a tumult, set the city in an uproar. Close quote. The state is not always deceived or cowed. 
sometimes it upholds justice. Acts 18. But behind the scenes, deceit is at work. Temptation or pain are set to befall all due to the conspiracies of the Jews. Acts 20. Because St. Paul would not give in to them, those Jews that were of Asia stirred up all the people and laid hands upon him. They leveled lying accusations, finding ways to bring the powers of the state to work against the church. So intense is this hatred that some are even willing to starve themselves to death in order to murder, an insanity approved by the Sanhedrin. Quote, Some of the Jews gathered together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they killed Paul. And there were more than forty men that had made this conspiracy, who came to the chief priests and the ancients and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing till we have slain Paul. Now therefore, do you with the council signify to the tribune that he bring him forth to you as if you meant to know something more certain touching him, and we, before he come near, are ready to kill him. Close quote. The high priest is not ashamed to collaborate with spin doctors and experts in law, to work hypocritical misdirection, to manipulate the powers of the state with outright inventions, hoping to convict under the death penalty those whom they oppose. See Acts 24. They do not relent to have the church unjustly restrained. They want the apostle to be brought to Jerusalem, laying wait to kill him in the way. The hatred of God runs so deep as to enlist demons, magic, and to try to turn the state from Christ. Like the magician, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Yezu, seeking to turn away the proconsul from the faith. He is a forerunner of Kabbalah, his efforts making him blind. Quote, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately there fell a mist and darkness upon him, and going about, he sought someone to lead him by the hand. Close quote. Others sought to leverage the name of Jesus for miracles, yet without faith. Quote, Jewish exorcists who went about, seven sons of Seva, a Jew, a chief priest, did this. But the wicked spirit prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Close quote. More positively, this wrought conversions so that, quote, Many of them who had followed curious arts brought together their books and burnt them before all. So mightily grew the word of God and was confirmed. Close quote. This fight is not over. It will continue to the apocalypse until everyone acknowledges that the old has given way to the new. The risen Jesus says to his flock of both the beginning and the end, Thou art blasphemed by them that say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. 
if we are approaching the end, then the conflict between the two sides will be felt by everyone. Each has to choose between everlasting life or death. What is the law of Moses worth today? Everything and nothing. Everything in Christ, nothing without him.